1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. Joining me today is Gaurav Sinha. He's an Associate Director of Modern Alpha and Asset Allocation at WisdomTree. Please note, Gaurav and I are registered representatives of Foreside Fund Services. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of some investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We're going to have a really special show for you today. Um, we have two uh, returned guests with Gaurav. We also have Srinivas Thiruvadantai, who's the Director of Research at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. Srinivas, you cover so much more than India in a lot of your work at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, and there's so much going on in the global economy and global markets. Let's just check your pulse. What do you think about
0: the U.S. and the global economy today, and, and all that's going on. So the global economy is at a very dangerous uh, fork here, um, especially with the trade war. I mean, people are un- underestimating the how severe a trade war can be, especially in this globalized economy where there is so many interlinkages and therefore so much of investment that is related to all these supply chains and interlinkages. Um, and to some extent, the last couple of weeks, you can see the market. Markets have woken up to, to the risks here, uh, and so and, and you know you you've been seeing the bond markets to some extent doing this, um, and 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 the stock markets are starting to follow suit. So, without a resolution uh, to the to the trade, doesn't mean a complete resolution. Without a resolution to the trade, the global ec- re- expansion would be threatened. And and how do you think about the U.S. cycle? Like, and certainly the trade war is one
1: major risk. We see that right. on the headlines every day. The markets do not like the trade war. Although they've been somewhat, you know, they, in some ways, would you say they've started to price in that it's not going to happen? It's still seen, and compared to the fourth quarter where they were really pessimistic. You had a big snapback. It's not you know they're down five percent from the highs in the S P
0: 500. But would you say the lack of a deal is priced in yet? No, la- lack of a deal is not priced in at all. Um, the U S. by itself is slowing because the tax um, stimu- I mean the tax cut stimulus um, were it, is fading. Um, by itself, the U S. economy would not be threatened were it not for what's happening around the rest of the world and the trade war. Um, it's an aging expansion, but by itself it. was... Was not looking like it was going to immediately go down, um, but with the trade deal, uh, trade—I mean, the, the trade tensions—there is a, there is a real risk, and you can see that. I mean, the fourth quarter too, uh, you saw how the stock market ultimately caught up to the rest of the world, um, and you know it's a globalized economy. Even if we don't export a whole lot, our companies are global companies. And and because of that, um, you have a risk through the financial side. When the stock market goes down 20%, as we saw in the fourth quarter, you have retail sales had a very severe decline in the in, in December. Most people will point you out to consumer confidence and to the job market, which is doing well. The problem is our economy has become much more top heavy. So 5% of the people, the top 5% account for like 40% of consumption and a lot of the discretionary spending is accounted disproportionately by the top 5-10% of the people and they are affected by the stock market. Yeah. So that's
1: the sort of inequality story, and in some ways that the wealth concentrated, and then but they're also doing a lot of the spending.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right.
1: Um, so do you do you are you optimistic that a trade deal comes together, or do you think? I mean, it's it's interesting that they're fighting it very publicly. Uh, that doesn't seem from just Asian culture that that would be a winning strategy. I mean, it's very hard for China to quote-unquote save face in that type of negotiation style that we have in the U.S. What's, what's your thoughts?
0: Well, you know, now we are veering into something that is certainly beyond my like uh, my big pay, uh, pay grade, which is uh, politics and, and uh, making political forecasts. From uh, I mean, we are certainly not in our own, thinking, and in our own positioning, we are certainly positioned much more bearishly, but I will say that we tend to be much more bearish than on the average. Um, So, uh, that's that. I think the main issue here is, as you rightly pointed out, the, the rhetoric has been pitched up, which probably is not very conducive to making a trade making a deal that allows both uh, sides to save face, yeah. right? And that's really the issue. Um, had the rhetoric not been pitched up uh, and some back channels been used, um, some face-saving deal, even if it is not a substantive deal, could have been done, which doesn't rock the boat too much. Uh, but now both sides are ratcheting it up, and which makes it hard to see how they're going to back down. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of history behind it. I and mean, we in the U.S. don't tend to be that... Um, Americans are to some extent like Indians you know they're living in the present they don't really know that much or care that much about history Um, whereas I think the rest of the world remembers a lot of slights and things like that from very (laughs) distant past and for the Chinese the 19th century where there were a lot of unequal treaties and where they were like they were the, uh, on the receiving end of the colonialists, and although they were never directly colonized, um, is, is certainly a major factor in their thinking about, are they being browbeaten here? And so that, those are the risks here in terms of trying to get a deal. Now, for
1: markets that are doing better, If I want to bring you into this conversation because we, we were talking just not so long ago. Right. And uh, India was underperforming a little bit, but as Modi's chances to win it started right. ticking up, it started doing well, and you had said very 70%. correctly 70% right. of Modi winning. And now, handicaps, so for people who aren't plugged into what's happening in the elections, uh, describe what just happened from the elections and, yes. and what, what shook out.
2: So what happened... Uh, Earlier this week was that Modi came back uh, as a second-term Prime Minister of India. Now it may not sound necessarily, uh, you know, a, a very extraordinarily. Uh, difficult thing, but in the Indian political context, his political party won second time a clean majority, which has happened for the first time since 1971. Now, remember in India, there are a bunch of political parties. I think there were more than 300 political parties that were fighting elections for this term.
1: We have two, and we
2: can't even get a third,
1: <laughs> like a third, you know, somewhere down the middle, and you got 400.
2: Exactly, and the vote share for Modi was 49%, very close to 50%, which has been, which is the all-time Higher, so this is everyone was expecting him to win people expected that he'll come back to power with uh, maybe slightly reduced numbers than the last time but he actually came back with an even higher numbers and from an investment standpoint why is this important is because i'll give you a personal anecdote uh, he, some of these reforms that he implemented on the ground whether it's demonetization or the uh, gst which changed the taxation structure of the entire country overnight i have happened to be in India when the GST or the taxation uh, reforms were implemented. And actually, it was two days before I got married. And I was talking to all these small and medium, you know, uh, businesses that were uh, working on the ground, whether it was caterers in my wedding or, you know, decoration uh, uh, providers in the wedding and they were all confused as to how they would work around these taxes and everybody was, you know, very upset with this hush-hush implementation of uh, these reforms and he still came back with power. So, if I were in Modi's shoes, I would think that, you know, I implemented some really uh, um, uh, difficult reforms and I came back to power so I should probably push the boundary a bit more and go for even more difficult reforms in my second term, so that's my you know uh, silver lining in the election results that came out.
1: I mean, it wasn't just the taxes; it was demonetizing, taking Absolutely. the money out. Squeaking.
2: Absolutely, and So they people have to now pay their taxes. There's less black money, which exactly. And and the lot of first term of his government was spent in putting guardrails on which the economic engine would run so the when he came in 2014 india was a very different country than what it is now nobody had the unique uh, you know identification number now 1.2 billion people have a uid number all of them are linked into government you know uh, databases so every way an individual interacts with the broad economy it's easier for an individual to interact. It's also easier for auditing agents agencies to monitor what's going on. So the government's tax revenues have been going up. Uh, there's a lot of digitization in uh, you know in in India's economy right now. India is like a data mine in uh, incubation it's it's a data mine which is being you know uh, every day there are billions and billions of tar- transactions that are getting added to the yeah. uh, uh, all these uh, data, uh, government databases I mean, so the next term in my opinion would be pushing uh, the this economic engine on the guardrails that were put in the first term
1: i mean i think so i look at you just look at the market so the sensex is now at an all time high now what's interesting if i look back to 10, 12 years ago, the currencies weighed down. So, like, India in U.S. dollar terms hasn't gone anywhere in over a decade. And so, it's sort of interesting, Sri, how did the election shape up from your perspective? And then we should talk a little bit about what what we expect going forward.
0: Yeah, I thought that they would win, but with a reduced margin and probably need the support of other parties. Clearly, this was uh, not the magnitude of victory was was a clear surprise. Um, What it also says, as I agree with Gaurav, is that it him more uh, room to carry out more substantive reforms that people have been complaining about that he didn't do in the first term. Uh, there is market-friendly reforms, which is what most economists and financial market people are concerned about. I think the reforms that he did in the first term were actually also quite substantive in, in many ways. Um, and whether they are what exactly is going to do, whether they're going to do it I mean, I, I think the, from what I've heard from some people uh, to who, who are plugged in is that they are seriously considering some of the uh, economic reforms especially with respect to labor and, uh, and, and land acquisition, which is one of the bigger problems for India, the cost structure, it adds to the cost structure. So uh, I think, yes, I mean naturally you can see that's why the sensex has gone up, it's, I mean, the valuations are incredibly high, but the expectations are also sky high. So what are these big, ba- you
1: talk about land acquisition, maybe give a little bit more context. What, what are the issues that they need to reform? Why is it so expensive, you know, relative to, say, the U.S. or other
0: markets? So in India, you know, I mean, obviously in poor countries, rights are not, as secure, not because the laws are not there, but because the poor people are not aware of their rights and do not know how to enforce them, right, in the courts. Um, So in the past, what has happened is uh, people have been evicted and not been given their proper due uh, from, from the land, especially tribal people. I mean, it's not egregious compared to some other developed countries, developing countries, but certainly not something that should have been done. So what happened was there's always been this this issue. So the previous government passed a land acquisition bill that was pretty uh, draconian in the sense that it made acquiring land incredibly cumbersome and the cost of it also very very high. Um, so the minimum cost that you were supposed to pay uh, and I forget the exact details was very high. Um, so anybody wanting to set up uh, a factory or you know or for infrastructure um, acquiring land is becomes prohibited expensive, Um, which is why, you know, when people say, how is Vietnam and Bangladesh doing so much better than India and textiles? Why can't we do that? But you can't acquire land to make those kind of small margin industries like textiles uh, profitable in a place like India. And then, which brings me to the second point, which is labor reform. India's labor laws are incredibly onerous. So if you have any factory of any scale that is above 100% you cannot hire and fire people without getting the government's permission. Hmm. So, which automatically means that you can't create economies of scale. You have to make all these uh, inefficient scale because you want to remain below that 100 employee mark and, and in fact, even below 20 sometimes where you get some even more breaks. So, um, those reforms, people have been talking about that for 25 years. Nobody has touched them so far, okay? I'm not sure whether he's going to be able to touch it, but just to give you an idea about how much resistance there is to these kind of reforms. I think in terms of reforms, there are two sort of sets of reforms which
2: he can uh, push for, in my opinion. One is sort of low-hanging reforms, low-hanging fruits. These are essentially pushing for policies towards fiscal and, you know, pushing fiscal and monetary policies that are going to be supportive of growth in the near term. Uh, continuing to, you know, simplification of taxation structure, a lot of it has already been done under GST, but, you know, there are still few kinks that need to be resolved. Uh, working on those little changes, that's going to improve uh, tax revenue collection for government, uh, monetizing of loss-making assets, uh, government-owned enti- um, enterprises, uh, uh, getting away from that, uh, liquidity injection into public sector banks, and there are these NBFCs, which is non-banking financial corporations in India, You know, essentially government-owned entities in most cases that lend to infrastructural projects or other medium enterprises. So the banking sector in India has been under a lot of st- especially the public sector banks. And the government has been working with RBI to sort of resolve this by injecting liquidity into banks. So that, that's a sort of a easy reforms to go for because general public doesn't care for that much. Now, the next set of reforms, which is what uh, Shree just mentioned, whether it's land acquisition or labor reforms, that's going to be hard. And that comes down to, you know, being the, uh, the, the cost you pay for being a democratic country. Land in India is publicly owned. So any highway that you build is definitely going going to run on somebody's backyard and that guy is going to complain. Let
1: me just reintroduce our guests here. We're talking with Srinivas Thiruvadantai, the director of research at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, Gaurav Sinha, an uh, associate director here at Wisdom Tree. Um, and it, it's sort really of interesting Srinivas that we talk about you talked about why does not India compete with like the, the Bangladesh on on sort of this textiles but also you know the reputation of India is much more of a, a thing about emerging markets being very tied to China, the trade, how we started the conversation, they're much more of a local economy consumption-oriented story, or of a growth story, and less exposed to the trade war in some ways. Um, now, it's interesting, I mean, they're, they have a tech outsourcing, and, and sort of right after the election, you saw the currency rise, and you saw tech underperform sort of the financials and some sure. local economy sectors from that outsourcing perspective, I think. But any any commentary on how you think India is tied into the global trade
0: issues? Right. So if you look at China exposure, and a lot of the, the, the street banks put out this stuff, if you look at the China exposure, India comes out always the lowest in that. <laughs> uh, because India actually runs a pretty big net trade deficit with China. Very big. And um, there is a lot of Chinese like products. US. Yeah, just like the U.S. There are a lot of Chinese products in being sold in India, including consumer products. So, in that sense, uh, India is obviously, because it's a net deficit country, if there is, if there is, the global trade shrinks, both exports and imports shrink, the, the net deficit shrinks, of course, you know, exports also shrink. So, it's not like you're immune to it, but you are less affected by it. India is a largely a big domestic economy story, and that is what it is. And GST makes it even more attractive because now you're creating a large domestic ma- economy without any internal barriers, which used to be there when you went from one state to the other uh, domestic market that you've created uh, and, and that is why if you look at the Indian market it always trades at a premium to most of the EMs and you, if you wait for India to get cheap you might get it once in 10 years and you have to be really lucky at the time like 2009 and you, you have to grab that situation otherwise it rarely ever trades cheap what about the
1: currency, which is the one that's declined? You know, I mean, the reason why in dollar terms, that's a today, I is the stocks are high.
0: Right. But in the currency, any any thoughts on the currency side? Well, we, India had high inflation in from 2010, 9 to 2014, right? Yeah. Uh, so in 2013, when it was known as a fragile five because of the inflation and the high current account deficit. So, you know, the currency adjustment is largely a reflection of, of that. Yeah. Uh, from 2013 onwards, the currency has been more or less, you know, up and down. It's gone up, but it's, it's, it wasn't in 2013 i checked it was at 69 it's back again at 69 so it has now been stable for the last 4 years 5 years
2: yeah i mean i think um, a part of it is also because of the fact that reviving manufacturing is one of the was one of the key agenda items of modi 1.0 they wanted to go for manufacturing they realized that you know india is not like china where they can overnight build factories so they kind of uh, went back on that uh, initiative a little bit but what it meant was that... That all this time between 2014 and 2018, as the macro fundamentals of the country were improving, RBI was regularly stepping into forex markets and buying dollars and you know selling rupee assets. So therefore Rupee was I wouldn't say artificially, uh, uh, you know, being uh, weakened, but it was certainly uh, undervalued compared to what the actual macro fundamentals would suggest. So if I'm an investor into India right now, I wouldn't be too much worried about currency because macro fundamentals by and by large, except for one or two things here and there, are really uh, solid. So rupee actually looks undervalued compared to dollar, not overvalued at this point, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and I agree with that. I think 10 years ago, the rupee was at 40, right? I mean, I think, yeah. uh, in two, no, not 10 years ago. In 2007, it, it the, the highest reached it was at 40. Uh, and so, 35, and, yeah. So, at that time, uh, clearly it was overvalued. And then the Indian market was, a, you know, at the peak of the cycle, it was being valued at 25 or something like that, you know. Um, it's very different right now. Even though valuations are similarly high, uh, we are not at the peak of the cycle. The profits recovery cycle, it's at the bottom of the profit cycle in some sense so the the real issue is um, in whereas what has India done relative to the rest of the world other than the u s which is obviously clearly an outlier um, and I think uh, the, what the last four or five years especially have been is digesting a lot of the excesses that happened in the 10 years before that, uh, especially debt on the corporate side, cleaning it up and retrenching it and bringing the banking system back into, uh, into shape. And I think the foundations are there for a better story going forward.
1: Yeah, we uh, look at India in a few different ways. One of them is looking at just looking at where are the earnings coming from and to try to manage the valuation risk. As you're saying, it is one of the more expensive Mm -hmm. markets, and you can see mid 20s on the Sensex. And part of that's the tech bias and the consumer bias. But when you just look at where are earnings coming from, I mean, I'm looking at an index today of around 15 times trailing earnings and 13 times forward earnings, and that's a pretty reasonable for a high growth. Mm-hmm. Country? I mean, it it, it seems reasonable,
2: right? Right, and I mean, it kind of makes sense also because when countries are growing at seven and a half percent, when a country is growing at a seven and a half percent growth rate, it creates so much of tailwinds that you know you can simply, as a company, you can simply piggyback on that tailwind and you know just run your operation efficiently, and you will still continue to generate profits and earnings. You don't have to come up with a earth-shattering new idea to you to to have profitable uh, um, earning stream for your for you for for your company
1: now one of the macro we talked about when they were fragile five country you know one of the macro variables w- why do they have so much imports i mean they were importing gold as a uh, as like a store of value um they sort of clamped down on some of that but also oil they were doing a lot of subsidies for oil so that hurt their budget deficit it hurt their trade deficits What's the view on, I mean, and oil has come down, and right. so that may be helpful. Any views there on oil and how you look at that?
0: So um, so India's two Achilles heel uh, has always been, one has been oil. Um, if you look through history, whenever oil prices have gone through the roof, they've always created a problem, right? 2013 was one, one example. But if you go back to even 1990, the, the BOP crisis was caused by the Gulf War, right? Um, then before that, 1973, even in 1982, there were always problems with oil because India imports all of, almost all of its oil, um, 70, 80% or maybe more. Um, and because of that, uh, when price shoots through the roof, there is, there is a problem. The other thing is Indians tend to import a lot of gold, partly because of historical reasons. You know, obviously Indians love gold, um, but also because um, it's an inflation hedge, right? And uh, the, traditionally, the interest rates were not high enough to provide you a cover against inflation. However, I went back and looked. Over the last 30 years, some of the popular things that people invest in, like the public pension fund, uh, public, uh, no, it's public provident fund, PPF, um, where the interest rates are actually subsidized, which means you get a higher interest of if you put your money in there. They have actually given a reasonably solid real return over the last 30 years. Um, and now, actually, India has one of the highest real interest rates. Plus, what has happened is, because of demonetization, as, as uh, Gaurav was talking about, um, gold, people are not any longer putting... A lot of the gold demand reflected um, black money, right? Company. Yeah, I'm parallel sure. economy and black money. And people are actually taking, not putting money in gold. In fact, gold imports now hit a six-year low or something like that. Uh, no, 10-year low this year, uh, last year, in 2018. Um, so gold imports are coming down. People are actually losing the... the allure of gold is going down. So that one Achilles still is gone. And oil is clearly not where it was... 6 7 years ago at 120 you know so it's clearly not there so between those two things india's the balance of payments the current account situation is much better in a much better shape and so is the inflation situation because oil feeds through into all kinds of things in, into inflation so if you look at inflation actually it's been below the rbi's target consistently yep
2: and at at around uh, 2.9% inflation in india i actually expect rbi to continue cutting rates yeah so, so Gaurav, you can be, you know, we we say you're from India
1: and and you could be a cheerleader for India sometimes. And so on our allocation yeah. committees, uh, we say, oh, it's Gaurav bullish India. Um, <laughs> but you were, you know, a little bit hesitant last year, and now you're you're, you know, at our some of our latest discussions, you said you like India again.
2: Um, and obviously, the,
1: the the election is helpful. But
2: right, I mean, the reason why last year, uh, I think when you're saying last year, you you mean like towards the end of 2017. I was a bit hesitant because we're coming right after demonetization and that actually had an impact for lingering impact for next two three quarters so as an investment professional I was hesitant on you know being super overweight in India at a time when the small and medium enterprises were struggling but all of that effect gone and the positive uh, tailwinds now um, you know after the tough uh, demonetization was done and the new uh, political stability that this election has provided I'm I'm quite bullish on India for the time being now.
0: How do you think I mean, that? It's, it's same with the 2018. There were there was the GST, uh, and, and uh, there was also the uh, effect of the banks uh, still struggling. What what the what the RBI did was they toughened the norms on uh, banks not showing bad loans. They they showed you have to show bad loans, right? And suddenly the banking system seemed to have huge amount of bad loans, and they have now worked through that. Especially the bank, which comes back to the reform point the new bankruptcy code has actually enabled banks to recover a lot of bad loans compared with the past. Uh, the recovery rate has hit 50%. And in the past, I remember I worked for actually ICICI in India. Back then, it was not a bank. It was the an, largest uh, private bank a, in India. Yeah. it At that time, it was an industrial credit. So, they used to give long-term loans. We used to give long-term loans. There was like recovery, like it would take ages in recovering bad loans and you would not get anything on it. And, and you would get pennies to the dollar. And so, what what has changed is because of that the NPA problem is actually now starting to um, improve um, in the in the banking system, and the second aspect, which the the teething problems in in GST, is clearly behind us. And third is the uncertainty of the elections. That was quite serious because you, last year, um, FDI inflows in India actually fell for the first time in six years because of the uncertainty with who's going to come in, what's going to happen. And now those uncertainties have been resolved. I, I, I expect things will actually start to look up, both in terms of inflows of FDI and portfolio flows have already picked up very strongly, uh, but but also in terms of uh, the the domestic capex, uncertainty has been resolved, and I think we'll we'll see pick up in in all of those things.
1: Well, guys, it was a pleasure. It was good to
0: get the pre-election
1: views, get the post-election commentary. I Thank you so much for joining us on on our
2: show today. Thank you. you.
1: I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, here with Professor Jeremy Siegel and Peter Malouk, the CEO or President of Creative Planning. Peter, uh, welcome to New Jersey. Thanks for coming into town and doing a first for us, recording a show live from the beach. It's it's the best view I've ever had on a podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, Tell us a little bit. I mean, Creative Planning... Uh, Big in the headlines, a $40 billion RIA, one of the biggest wealth management firms. You get a lot of reward for the the nation's top financial planning firms. Tell us, how did you come to Creative?
3: So Creative Planning was actually one of the first um, firms in the country, first registered investment advisors, started in the early 80s by these three guys that also had an insurance company. And it was a small firm. It was kind of a side project for them. And uh, in 1998, uh, they became one of my clients, where I would handle their legal and planning for some of their clients. Uh, and in 04, after having done that for many other advisors too, I wanted to have a firm that was independent, I managed money to clients in a tailored way, and was able to take care of other things I was doing for my clients, like legal and tax. I'm also an estate attorney. And he had, he was ready to retire, and so I took over in 2004. At that time, they had a, a few dozen clients and. And uh, that's the, Whist- the rest started. is history. Yeah. Wisdom Tree. Yeah. yeah, 2004. Parallel right. timelines, that's yeah, right. Yeah, first ETF was
4: in 2016 to 2004 was the official launch of the yeah. company. So you're, you've been in business as long as, as we have. That's right.
1: <laughs> and so and so your firm is one of the fastest growing firms. Mm-hmm. And how, what sort of, what's the, the, the secret behind all this growth? Well, I think it's like... It's like making a cake. There's a
3: lot of different ingredients. You can't be missing one of the ingredients. Um, but I think that we were ahead of the curve on a lot of the trends in the industry. So uh, in '04, we had uh, re- stopped uh, when I had taken over. It was duly registered, and we had removed that. Well, that's become something that's become more popular today. But back and then, duly registered
1: for the people who are just listening. In. It's
3: an advisor that's a broker and an independent advisor at the same time. So we had we had just gone pure independent. Um, I think second we were we were buying ETFs when we had to explain what an ETF was to a client (laughs) Uh, I know that uh, about five years in a couple reps of of some ETF places told us we were the largest holder of their ETFs and I know today that's still the case but I mean we were ahead on on that we were passive uh, when active was very popular um, and we were doing financial planning before people were doing it And, and it was a lot of things like that so we had a very good jump start and I think the comprehensive nature of what we provide has been very helpful as well.
1: And so now, Goldman Sachs made some news. Yeah. Um, one of your fellow firms, United Capital, got got acquired. Um, I mean, what does that say to you about the industry? Like, how do you think this is going to be a new trend? And and just what's what's the landscape for independent advisors going forward? Well, I think what you're seeing is
3: you, know, you called us at the top of the the podcast a, a big. Uh, firm, but we're really I mean, very, very tiny in the grand scheme of things. We manage about forty billion. You compare that to the custodians that are all multi-trillion. The brokerage houses are all multi-trillion, um, and uh, you, you go to the independent world. We look big, but that's because the independent world's relatively new. We're actually very, very, very small. I mean, if you want, you're talking about hundreds of employees and forty billion in assets. Uh, I think you know big you've got to be you're probably double at least tri- you know double triple where where we are today and then, and then at least you've got one one thousandth of the market share and you, and you can say uh, you're a little bit bigger mm-hmm. but what I think you're seeing is we now have about 10 firms or so that are 30 billion and up 25 billion and up and I think we're gonna see some of those get bought by strategic buyers right now I mean, a private equity firm buys into one and then sells out later uh, to another private equity firm but they're getting big enough that you're seeing strategic firms interested. I don't think it, it's surprising. It's not surprising to me that Goldman Sachs bought a firm. Uh, it won't be surprising to me when a custodian... What, what do you think the economies of scale are that, that motivate that? I think, unfortunately, uh, I think that you, you've got a couple things. I mean, things. The fortunate part is I think Goldman Sachs is probably saying, hey, we work with all these super rich people. We've got ACO, which is another RA they bought a long time ago, or that uh, works with executives. And now they're going to have an RIA that deals with people. You know, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to invest, and I don't know if they'll change the brand or not, or how that's going to work. But I think that would be an outlet for that. But the other component is um, that that Goldman Sachs has a lot of products, right? And I I think this is going to be an interesting dialogue the the wealth management industry is going to have, the independent space is going to have about what does independent mean. Um, to me, independent means that that. You're a fiduciary, you're a registered investment advisor, and you're not selling your own products to the client. Um, I think that for other people, just if you're a fiduciary, that means you're independent. So I personally could never uh, take creative planning and imagine selling it to a brokerage house. Uh, but that's just my, my personal view, because I know someday the brokerage house's products are probably going to find their way into my client uh, portfolios one way or another. I know that Joe Duran who I think very very highly of who is the was is running United Capital said you know look that's he sees he sees that that's not going to happen and and yeah, I
1: guess what we'll, time will tell how that's going to play out. Let, let me put a question back to you so you talk about the the definition of independence being not using like your own products but you're also you let's say you're using a lot of passive you're paying another asset manager yeah. a big amount of fees is the largest hold of their ETFs where you might be able to manufacture that yourselves cheaper. I think the issue is once you can well I think first I'm not I don't think we can manufacture it
3: cheaper if you look at where a lot of ETFs are now. Yeah. Uh, I think they are where they are yeah. and not because of their construction but because of the investment in the ass in in the ETF itself. So the ETF has so many assets they can lower the incremental cost and maintain yep. the same or greater profitability. We would never achieve that scale to be able to do that. And but that you have the scale, frankly. Well, it would immediately put us at co- in conflict with our clients. So let's say that we have a small cap ETF, uh, but there's another small cap ETF that does what we want. Maybe we want small value uh, ETF. Uh, now we have the creative planning small value ETF. And you know, let's say Wisdom Tree lowers their fees uh, considerably below ours. Now I'm gonna go down the hall and fire all the people that are running the creative planning yeah. small value ETF or am I gonna find a way to justify uh, the small value ETF? I'd like to think that I would never do that, but um, I would n- I'm not always gonna be the owner and I'm not always gonna be the decision maker. It's almost
4: impossible yeah. not to lose that independence. That's right. That's I think what you're
3: saying. You're basically. just immediately a doctor who, who owns medication in the medicine cabinet and the patient shouldn't be surprised if they get more of that medicine. Mm, right.
1: And so when you when you think about so you you still it's nice to be humble and say you're small and that you're still you have big aspirations I assume with so what's the growth strategy what how do you is it buying other firms getting people to join creative what's the story to a smaller independent who might want to join I mean our strategy to, to this
3: point has been we're going to have the absolute best offering that any RIA can have we wake up every day and go are we offering the best that an an American uh, investor wants, wants an independent advisor, are we going to be the best one available to them? And anytime we think we're failing in one of those areas, we do, we do our best uh, to have the very best offering and then to have the very best people. That's how we've gotten to where we are today. Now, I've, I've not been a fan of acquisitions because if you look at a billion dollar firm and it acquires three firms, now it's three billion. Uh, to me, it's like a, a little baby tree and you go tack a bunch of heavy branches on it. I mean, the, it doesn't feel right. Uh, at forty billion, we do have the scale and the systems and the teams and the processes in place, and a very strong culture. That when we go add a five hundred million dollar firm, it doesn't change our culture. It it doesn't the whole firm doesn't bend to that new uh, firm. Uh, that new firm uh, is coming to us because they're going, hey, you know, thirty thousand clients chose Creative Planning. That's not thirty thousand clients that were acquired by Creative Planning. Which if you look at all of our top ten, you know, independent wealth management firms. Uh, to my knowledge, it's acquisitions, and so really, I think if, if you're a if you're a firm looking to sell, you look at Creative Planning and say, "Hey, these guys' clients want to go there. They didn't get to 40 billion by just acquiring all these clients." So I feel now we've got that strong trunk that we are attractive to to firms, and uh, it's attractive to us to add acquisition as part of our strategy. But the goal is still organic growth as much as possible, and uh, we're going to supplement it with acquisitions.
4: When you say organic growth from, you mean obviously the assets of your clients, but also new clients, yeah. new clients that come in through recommendations of the client, base you That's have, right,
3: rather than buying from the outside. That's exactly right. So if you look at us, us year to date, we've probably had one and a half billion of just clients coming to Creative Planning, and we made one acquisition that had almost five hundred billion in assets, and I think that's a nice path for us to increase our growth rate and our national presence um without you know changing the the culture that we've built
1: and what's the sort of top 3 reasons people come like what when they, when they're choosing you over one of these other independents or a warehouse I mean why why are they coming to you
3: I think there are a lot of reasons. I think one, they like um, the breadth and depth of services. You know, so there are a lot of firms that say, "Oh, you know, we we manage money. Well, we have fifty traders. We have a full options team. We have an alternative investments team. We have a fixed income team. We are dedicated uh, to managing the money uh, towards the client's needs uh, with specialists." You know, a lot of firms our size are outsourcing those things, uh, and that becomes a problem. Or they're Putting everybody in one of forty or you know four or forty models, and they hit a button and trade everybody at the same time. You know, we're not—that's not the way we're managing money at Creative. Uh, I think that's a very big part of it. I think the other big part of it is they want to be with an independent firm, but they want to feel safe. See, so, you know, they look at a brokerage house, billions of dollars, uh, uh, trillions of dollars. They feel safe, but they don't like the conflict. They come to the independent world. Firms have hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't maybe have that same sense of security. Um, but there's no conflict, and creative is giving them the best of, of both worlds. I think that's why our growth is, uh, has accelerated of late. And I, I think they love that we don't sell our own,
1: own products. That's uh, a big part of it. Let me, let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Peter Malouk uh, of Creative Planning about his firm and their, their growth profile. Professor, I interrupted.
4: No, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, I, I was just wondering, so you do estate planning services what insurance service what what is the panoply of services that you give them
3: so at first i haven't gotten to say this yet i mean your book it was uh, an inspiration to get into the industry and i mean he's just shrugging his shoulders because okay. he hears that all the time but i mean it it's uh this is something that you know obviously could have been done over the phone but i'm honored to be here sitting with you uh, uh doing this live thank you um and when a client comes in they're doing money management, and financial planning with us but from there they might do legal work with us, tax work with us. Uh, we will help them if they've retired early and and it's too soon for Medicare, we can help them with their health insurance. You know, some of these things I mean people in the industry know that you can't make money doing an individual health insurance policy. That's not what it's about. What it's about is solving the client's problems
4: is it like a family office to some extent well
3: that's what we you know we have on our wall you know barron's uh, once did a story on us and the headline was family office for all and that's mm-hmm. uh, you know, prominently displayed on one of the floors in our building i think that's how we see ourselves so you don't have to be multi billionaire to be That's
1: exactly get family right.
4: office services. You're That's saying. exactly right. Yeah.
1: yeah, is taxes like a key element of that? When you're, are you doing everybody's taxes, most people's taxes?
3: Well, we only do what the client wants. Okay. Right. So if the client comes in and says, "Look, I love my CPA, I'm perfectly happy," we say, "That's wonderful. Keep that relationship." You know, if your CPA is retired or you've moved or they've moved or you want to consolidate or for whatever reason, then we'll do the. We, we have the ability to do the taxes. We have the ability to do small business accounting, bill pay. So there's a lot of depth in each of these departments and what we're able to do to, to
1: do that all in house too, or do you all in
3: house. All yes. in house. Yeah.
1: Building your own technology? Some of some
3: of our own technology yeah. and some some third party.
1: Mm-hmm. So where do you decide what, what the what that line is?
3: Well for us, if if we can solve it externally, that's gonna be our that's gonna be our choice hundred percent of the time. We don't wanna be in the technology development business. But if we think we can do something better or we think, uh, like, for example, with our planning software, there are all these things we wanted to do that were very – it took us more energy and time to deal with the vendor than to create our own from scratch. So we are mm. almost done creating our own from scratch. So that's an example of when we would look to do something in-house.
4: What What are – do you find the concerns of investors today from your clients? What, what are they asking you about? What are they worried about? How do – how do you set up the portfolio or their financial structure to avoid some of the fears that they might have?
3: You know, I think that the, the main fear they have is one they really can't articulate. And I think that they, they really feel like the world is different. And it's interesting because I look at investing and I, I would divide it in two on the one hand the part that's not different is the market goes down and it comes up and we have corrections every year we have bear markets every couple years it's normal i i I don't lose any sleep wondering is the s&p 500 going to come back Uh, that part's the same and i think they know that uh, in their minds and hearts but something feels different to them and it really is a different world because what's different now is things move much faster so you know the 70s 80s 90s you know pre-internet what a cycle was just longer. You know, now you could have like December. We had a full blown bear market and recovery in four weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it does feel different. And you know, the example I use with our team is, you know, you go to a. Used to go to a restaurant uh, when I was younger, and you'd go, oh, "This restaurant isn't very good. It might not last a few years." Well, if it it's not very good now. It might not last a few months. <laughs> Though we we punish the losers quicker, we reward the winners faster. And I think it's overwhelming information
4: the, flows so much faster that's right said, and,
3: and that. so the markets become more efficient I think just very alarming to people and, and they can't put their finger on what's different, but that I think that's what it is that creates a lot of anxiety for for today's investor
1: is it the changing demographics that they're just getting older so they can't take that much risk and then did they in the fourth quarter were people panicking and you you keep them in or how do you think about that well, I would tell you this is you know not Even a bit of a. I don't. I can't recall one
3: client calling me in December. So one of the advantages of really having a needs-based investment approach with a tremendous amount of education behind it and a plan is that our clients are informed. They do understand how the markets work. They do understand what they what they own and why they own it. What they have in place to meet their needs. If there's a prolonged bear market, so our our clients I don't worry about. That's the people just coming right on board and they haven't learned all of that yet. Uh, those are the ones you that you know. Really-
4: it isn't so easy. You've done a good job. Peter Bernstein wrote uh, forward to my first edition of Stocks right. for a Long Run. And in that, he describes when he started out, he explained exactly what he did to one of the clients. He said, We're, we're going to have a bear market. You've got to stick with me. It comes back and your returns are going. And the person nodded his head and nodded his head. And nodded, you know the story. Right. As soon as that bear market came, he came yep. in the past, sell it. He said, No, just a minute. We talk. Sell it. I'm just, you know, he, he just panicked and got. Yep. I said, You know, people can understand things intellectually, doesn't mean they can deal with it emotionally. That's right. And, and, uh, and if you've done a really good job, if you can hold their hand at that point and say, listen, you know, stick with me. Yes. Uh, yep. And
3: uh, and they'll always appreciate it. If you they know. will. you got to get them through the first
1: one. That's right. And uh, then, then they're more on board each yeah, time. Right. Yeah. I mean, you talked about using having an alternatives team, and that's one of the things a lot of people are doing for volatility management. People have low expected returns. Professor, there's more and more I hear. I was at a conference this week. Somebody thought the next 10 years was going to be 4% expected returns. So yeah, Is you, that
4: nominal, too? Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I'll let you 2% real. Yeah. let you combat that. But what, what do you think about the alternatives? Well, I think, I mean, I think, this people are scared of the stock market,
3: and so they're going to alternatives. And alternatives are investments in the same economy. It's just private <laughs> right. versions that a public. I mean, private equity. I mean, we talk about it like it's a separate asset class. And to me, it's really, it's the stock. It's the private version of the stock market. You're an right. equity owner. It's an equity asset class, and private lending. You can liken to bonds and private real estate to real estate. So you get a little bit of, uh, a little bit of volatility volatility different they behave a little bit differently they have their own micro issues but also you don't get reporting every day right. and I think a lot of people are just paying not to be alarmed on a daily basis um, and I think that's a, a big part of it is the psychology but you, you can reduce the volatility with a good combination you can improve the expected return but you really have it's very different than the public markets I think here manager selection is a very big deal having access to best in classes is, is very important and then being able to put up with the complexity of, of the extra K 1s and maybe the delayed tax return and the illiquidity and the cash calls and all that stuff. For a lot of our clients, they say that's, I'm putting that in the not worth worth it category. And some, I think, are really intrigued by it. And so we have that team, and where it's appropriate, we use it.
4: You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, um, m- managed, I think, an endowment for uh, King's College. Um, and uh, when they were discussing what to put in it, uh, this person said, oh, I want to be in real estate. And said, why? Well, because it's nowhere near as volatile right. as it's a stock market. And he said, you know, if I had to get you a quotation every day for this real estate, you'd realize how volatile it really is. Because yeah. if there's bad things going on, you're not going to get a quote for it. That's right. <laughs> you know, and, but people think they're protected because they don't, you know, yep. somehow it doesn't get reported. Yep. You know, we had stock market like once a week. They say, oh, it's so much more stable.
3: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember in the 08-09 crisis, we would update, you know, we always update the financial plans for clients. We'd come in and we'd go, okay, your, your U.S. stocks are down, your international stocks are down, your emerging market stocks are down. Uh, your Then we'd go to their, their homes uh, or their rental properties, and they'd say, oh, it's the same, it's the same, it's yeah, the same. Not but, really. Uh, not really, <laughs> but not can, really, but you're allowed to you know, put the the your head in the sand, fell. right?
4: You know, it's interesting because in the financial crisis, it's retailed up well at the beginning and then just went down the tube at the end and actually had a bigger decline than the stock market itself. I mean, just again, you think that real estate was safe and then they realized...
1: No, <laughs> right. That's right. I, I was at this uh, conference in Missouri this week, and uh, Michael Mobison was talking about the private equity. As you know, there's a lot of it was a lot of private equity people, a lot of venture capital people, and they started off the conference with somebody attacking the big miss. And, he, and there was a, a quote that I'll, I'll repeat: like ninety four percent of institutional investors expected private equity to outperform the equity markets. Yeah, and this and this is a gentleman who's. Who doesn't you know doesn't right. was attacking all these myths, and um, and he talked about the endowments that are shifting. How much more they're adding to private equity? They're shifting out of fixed income, and it's because of this volatility well, reduction that they're not seeing the marks. Let, yes. me,
4: me, let me let me give a little bit of a justification. I mean, there is good theory that a less liquid asset should give you a higher return, right? Any more liquid asset. I mean, you know, I mean, the prime example we see that in the government bond market, the under runs and the offer runs and and everything like that. So there is a little bit of a premium. So in a way, if I have private equity or ego, in venture capital or whatever, there in the long run. But if you go through the math on it, it's not much of a difference. They think it's a big difference. Well, Maybe a- it's a half a percent, and if they need to sell it, they can't at that point. So in, in the public market, you know, the private market, if, and then again, and they can't get the diversification in the venture capital because they can't, I mean, we can, we can get an index fund of, you know, 5,000 stocks everywhere, and they can't do that. Mm-hmm. So they're, they, they're buying a liquidity, which should give you a little bit of high return, but they're much less diversified, which is against them on a risk-return trade-off.
3: Yeah, I think if you look at private equity, I mean, oftentimes they use the wrong benchmark, so they compare to the S and P 500 and so the small cap um, index. But you do get a liquidity premium. But I think if you segment it out based on uh, managers, I think you do see a different outcome if you use the top managers in that space. I mean, if you're using the top 20 private yeah. equity firms, there's eight thousand private equity yeah. funds, and I yeah. mean, it, it, there's a private equity fund on every corner, and some of them are run by two people and they buy four local yeah. companies. And yeah. obviously, as a group, they're not going to outperform the S&P 500, but do I ex- expect a sophisticated private equity firm that's buying 30 or 40 companies all over the country that's done one every year for 20 years you know, to probably do a little bit better? I do.
4: One of the biggest shams people, you know, think it's a different asset class. Oh, you should have 5% in private equity, 10% like it is really an uncorrelated asset class yeah. with everything else. And if you, it isn't, but it sounds like, oh, yeah, you, uh, you know, then it pays to be you know, a little fund. And someone says you got to have at least 5%. and then If you can sell it to them, you know, that's big bucks. So there's too many people in there. It's like hedge fund managers. Yeah, there's too just many too people. Too there are good people in it, and there's a lot of people that are just there to collect the fees and are right. just going to unperform.
3: So you, you can do well, but you have the right manager, I think. Yes. You increase, that that yes. Makes the difference.
1: Yes. Um, maybe as, as we're getting closer to the end of our conversation, I, I think you described your client as like the millionaire next door. Is yeah. Is that an appropriate description? Like, how would you dis- say you know, the people who are looking for for creative? So we have our typical clients in our
3: private wealth group, and they're the the millionaire next door or the multi millionaire next door. We call them. We also have an emerging wealth practice for people that are that are below our half million dollar minimum and we will work with them online and and still provide all the ancillary advice and then we have an ultra fluent practice which was one which is the fastest growing part of our practice where maybe we have five six billion plus in assets where it's people whose net worth is in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions and uh, that's become a very important part of our practice as well and I think that group values the family office aspect more than the others uh, and so it's been a very it's been probably the most exciting part of our practice to watch unfold.
1: any uh, any sort of closing thoughts about creative, where you're going, the future of of the business? Well, I mean I, I, my hope is I there's so many
3: things in this business that we're in that we don't control you know what the stock market does, the bond market, recessions, uh, politics, and all of those things. but so my focus has always been, can I get up in the morning and can my, can our team get up in the morning and say, you know, the, everyone here is doing the best they can to make this the best place every day. And this is the best, if not one of the best places for an investor to be. And if, if we do that, I'm perfectly happy. I mean, that's the, that's the rest of the stuff I can't control.
1: Uh, and, but I found that when you do that, the rest of the stuff tends to work out. Very nice to plan. And, Professor, any any comments on what he can expect from stocks and bonds uh, for the next 10 years? Well, I definitely
4: think more than 2%. Uh, I mean, uh, 2% after inflation, wow. I mean, you know, my models say it's going to be a little bit lower than our long run, which is 6.5 to 7, maybe a point lower. You know, I say, you know, 5, 5.5. But uh, that's still, I mean, mean, astronomical compared to bonds, fixed income. The you know the equity risk premium is very generous right now. The cushion is is in there, and uh, yeah, so equity is still the place to be. I think. How do you see international versus U.S.? Well, you know, I know it's been a tough slog for international. Um, it all you know, it always the best asset class is always the asset class that, in retrospect. Has done the worst. <laughs> I mean, it's almost right. a mathematical truism, right? Right. Uh, and uh, you know, I think emerging markets have taken a little hit now with the trade things going up, but I think they look not only fundamentally sound, but even I've I've talked to technicians that say their their charts are really beginning. They they put in a bottom in December, and that uh, there's a little bit of storm now, but. Uh, they they think that they're going to be good, and um, and and uh, even Europe and Japan selling thirty percent under the U.S. is 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 going to work out in the long run. And I think you know, I, I not only in stocks in the long run, but with stuff what stuff with Jeremy worked out early on in future for investors, valuation trumps growth in the long run. If you get it, something cheap, it doesn't have to grow fast um, for it to be the best investment in the long run.
3: Well, as a firm that globally diversifies, I'll
1: just say from your mouth to God's
3: ears.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, Peter, it's been a fun conversation. Thank you for coming to the Jersey Shore to record our Behind the Markets uh podcast. discussion today thank to you for it. having me i have been listening to behind the markets and SiriusXM xm 132 thanks to peter professor siegel i'm jeremy schwartz have a great week everybody thanks for listening to the behind the markets podcast if you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com you can also follow me on twitter at jeremy d schwartz i'd like to thank patty hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer daniel bruno join us next week for another edition of the show